Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year And to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. everybody this is the helping friendly podcast this is episode 178 i am here with jonathan and matt hello guys hi glad to glad to know that you are here hi matt well hey there (laughs) (laughs) 
I know I've said this before, but I still am mesmerized every time I read the episode number. I'm like, wow, we've done a lot of fucking episodes. But um, how are you guys doing? We're recording this on Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to you both and to all the people out there who are also fathers. Likewise. A lot of dads. A lot of dads. A lot of dads. A lot of dads out there. This is dad rock, after all. (laughs) It is dad rock. Um, We are going to talk about some awesome stuff how are, how are you guys doing in this situation? Any music or other things that are making you more happy than you would otherwise be that you'd like to tell people about? It's all music keeping me happy, I think. Uh, that and my family, um, who are, I should go ahead and mention because they're awesome. But yeah, I like, I, I'm, I'm living with, and here I even have Within Arm's Reach, the latest Woods album. It's finally got my physical copy and, uh, but just so much, there's so much music still coming out into this world, even if people aren't playing concerts, that uh, that that keeps me at least distracted. And I kind of like that. A couple of good releases that came out uh, a few days ago as we're recording this. Um, mix of old and new. There is a new Bob Dylan record, which is a really Playlist. good... I haven't heard it yet. I've oh. been out of town. Well, it's awful. Don't listen to it. No, it's just, <laughs> it's great. Uh, a lot of people have commented on this. It's one, probably one of his best in the last like 20, 25 years. Um, powerful. He, he contains multitudes. He's not joking. Um, this we've heard. And uh, some really epic stuff on there. Great record. Great sounding record. Um, and um, the other one was a new but not new because it's it was finished in 1975 and just finally released Neil Young record, uh, which I do not have within arm's reach, but it's across the room. Um, well, that's bullshit, man. I pre-ordered both of those <laughs> albums. I don't have physical copies of either of them yet. I got the Neil. So. Yeah, I got the Neil right away. I haven't spun the record, but I've listened to the digital version and um, it's a great, great album. Uh, definitely. That, that one I've listened to. was worth 45 years of waiting. There's some cool tracks on there. And then... Uh, other big release for uh, this past Friday was by a band called Fish, uh, the uh, Alpine, this place, Alpine Valley. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's a it's a what? crazy remote place in the Midwest. And in 1998, they recorded a concert there. And uh, you can listen to it. And uh, actually, we, we should probably talk about it on this episode. What, what do you guys I, think? I think that's a terrible idea. I mean, we, we're going to scrap the whole plan for the episode and just talk about this concert that they recorded, what, 20 some years ago? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's what we did. I will say that between the time the last episode was published and this episode will be published, we missed the anniversary of our seventh anniversary as a podcast, which was June 11th, 2013. Episode one um, is actually pretty hard to find on the internet. It's not on our website. And I, I will tell you where it is if you email us and, and you want to find it. But um, Jonathan, I, I I I know that you will be very comfortable with me saying this. I've enjoyed your music, the music that you've been creating during this. And you've posted a bunch of stuff on Instagram and your original songs that you've been writing and putting out there are really cool. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm re working all of them now. Uh, so it, but thank you for saying that. That's very nice of you. It's really, it's good stuff. And you are, you're good guitarist and songwriter so thank you and uh, I, I was gonna say i don't know about a good guitar player but uh, thank you I, I will accept the other compliment there are guitar sounds that come out of the guitar that sound good to me kind of you 
Um, we are going to release a new podcast in about two weeks after people hear this. It's going to be called Festival Circuit, New Orleans. It's season one. Matt and I are working on it together, and Matt just sent me the rough cut of episode one. It's about the music of New Orleans, the Jazz Fest, and it's really cool, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. And Matt, you've, I, I think I think episode one is coming together. Do you have any preview for folks? We talked to a lot of people, uh, a lot of great New Orleans musicians, um, you know, uh, from everybody from way back in the day from, uh, like George Porter Jr. Um, up to kind of modern, uh, folks that have been bearing the torch, like some of the cats from Galactic, uh, chime in on it. And I think the one thing that, um, is, uh, kind of runs through all the interviews is that, um, these people have no shortage of thoughts about the music of New Orleans and they're all very, very passionate about it. And so it's really, really cool, um, to, to be able to listen to a lot of people that are so into, uh, the, the culture down there and, and, um, really interesting stuff about the history of jazz fest. Like so many people know jazz fest and attend jazz fest, but to actually hear about like the story of how it came together is, uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, I agree. And there's, there's something that, um, I mean, one of our central like theses, if you will, was like the music of this city is different from anywhere else in the world. And you could say that about other cities, but it's, it's proving to be true, at least as far as the interviews are concerned. So July 9th will be the first episode of that. And guys, have, has anyone been using a Harry's razor? Since we last talked, I unfortunately have had to use a Harry's razor since we last talked. Uh, <laughs> you, you're way the, more cleanly shaven. The, yeah, the people can't see it, um, but there was a, a version of me that existed in my home for a few months that was becoming increasingly more grizzled, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I had to uh, I had to clean my appearance up uh, a little bit. Um, so, uh, braved the salon experience and got a haircut, and I have been uh, proudly using my Harry's razor to keep my face uh similarly groomed and uh i can finally confirm it's a great experience so thanks harry's jonathan well i just want to say that matt does look really sharp nowadays so he really he does was, <laughs> he was kind of letting himself go um but I, I i have not used any razors in a while since you last used a harry's razor to shave your head last time i shaved my head i did use a harry's razor it still it looks really good well, you know, I mean, I keep it tight with the uh, the old clippies, but, you know. <laughs> it's interesting. The quarantine is like, I feel like the hair story of the quarantine is mostly beards. You know, you see people's beards growing and growing. And Brad, who's on a road trip, I think he's in the middle of nowhere in Utah right now. His beard is incredible. And my, my story of Harry's has been that my face continues to be very smooth, but my hair gets longer and, and more unkempt, but Harry's is helping me. So we do want to tell you that if you are listening to this and you need to either shave your head or maybe trim your beard or do something, you can get uh, a, a free trial set at harrys.com slash HF pod. You get a handle with a five blade razor, some lathering shave gel, lathering, which is important. Um, and a travel blade cover for your next trip, which will be in 2022. And uh, anyway, <laughs> go to harrys.com slash hfpod to start shaving better today. I do want to say we have another sponsor, Section 119. I wear my donut mask every day. I don't think I expected to wear it because I was like, I'm not going to wear a donut mask. But I had to wear a bunch of different masks in this like terrible time where like our job is to wear masks and it's the it's like adjustable it has a little thing where you can adjust the the fit of it and matt 
and Jonathan and Brad and I all have section 119 masks. I personally think this is the best fitting one that I've had. And they have a bunch of other stuff too. Things like shirts and ties and belts and socks and all kinds of things. But do you guys, have you guys used the masks? Uh, I mean, I've had the donut mask for a while. Um, my son likes them cause they, they fit him better than a lot of the other masks that we, you know, we've got masks. We've got a bunch of different kinds of masks cause you need a lot of masks. You got to keep washing them and all this stuff. Um, and you, I have have, the, you have kids that need to go out into the world. Like my kids don't need to go out in the world. So when you right. have like many people in your household that need to go out in the world, you got to have a lot of masks. Yeah. We have a lot of masks, but I also have their, uh, the Harry, not the, Sorry, I was thinking about Harry still. The Section 119, <laughs> uh, the black masks that they yeah. have, and those are those are very good too. Um, so we've got, you know, a variety of things. And yeah, I, I like them. Matt? Yeah, I've been wearing mine. Um, there are the, I had like a, you know, a generic N95 mask early on before we got these, which was very uncomfortable and sweaty and not a great experience. And um, I agree, these masks fit nicely. They feel nice on your face and um, get lots of compliments when I go out and about wearing them. I live in a totally. su- super heady neighborhood. So there's uh, random, you know, fish fans abound, or at least people who know about fish. And uh, even if people don't stop me, a lot of times when I'm walking around, I'll hear kind of trailing behind me like, oh, that guy had a fish mask on. So it's (laughs) pretty cool. I've gotten a couple of compliments. It's really cool to have someone be like, hey, man, I like your mask. It's like wearing a tour shirt. (laughs) Piper was out at a protest not too long ago with one of the donut masks and got a compliment. So it's pretty cool. I I will say that my new neighbor, Mark Brownstein from the Disco Biscuits, he walked by and I was like, hey, man, do you want a donut mask? And he was like, I went long on surgical masks, so I don't need one. Which was interesting because I want to hear more about that. So check out section119.com, get yourself some gear, and enter the promo code HFPOD for 20% off your purchase. Also, I guess the day after the, the day that this airs, they will have the night before played a, a show to an empty Citizens Bank Park, which as a new resident of Philadelphia, I understand is where a baseball team plays called the Phillies. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, there's a John that happens there uh, occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool that they're playing there, and I can't wait to watch it. And I, I will say, it, despite Jonathan's... You guys are speaking like three languages I don't understand. <laughs> no, we're we're, we're like about to go deeper. Biscuits, John's, and sporting. I Just mean, wait like, for come this, on, Jonathan. Um, the Goose Bingo Tour has been really incredible. I just want to say one thing, which is that the production quality, the commitment that these guys and their crew and their their team has to putting on a really unique performance is the most unique thing I've seen since the quarantine started three, whatever that was, three and a half months ago. Really incredible. And I encourage people to check it out because it's really cool. You play along at home. They have no idea what they're going to play until the bingo ball is drawn. And I just think for any band to accept that and thrive in it is cool. We also like, they have not just songs, but like they'll get a bingo ball. It's like do 40 pushups. And then each band member takes turns doing pushups. And it reminds me a lot of fish in the old days when they were doing the rotation jam and they had to make things up on the fly and, you know, adjust. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, all right, that's enough plugging for now. Um, I wanted to introduce a new feature before we get into the episode, which is fan mail. And we, we've been receiving a lot of notes, which is amazing. And we encourage people to 
send us email, send us Facebook messages, Twitter messages. I've been getting a lot of messages through the main Osiris page, which is cool too. And just a couple I wanted to highlight, if that's cool with you guys, Matt and Jonathan, can I do that real quick? No, no, no. Yeah, okay. no, it's fine. All if right, they have nice things to say, the episode. I'd be glad to hear them. <laughs> let's get to the episode. Please do. They're good. They're good emails. We like emails. So Ryan, who emailed us about our summer 96 episode said, I just ran across this episode and wanted to share a story. So we had talked about summers 96 and then we did the, the video, um, conversation about summer 96. It's cool to hear from people who were there. He was in school in the Netherlands and caught a train to, um, the Hamburg show. And he said, we took, we took a 10 hour train ride. And at some point somewhere in Germany, they were supposed to change trains. And because all the announcements were in German and they didn't understand, a bunch of people got off the train, but they didn't. The train started moving back in the rail yard. And eventually they were, they realized that they were supposed to get off the train and someone yelled at them, Americans, and they, they had to get off the train. I mean, this actually happened to me in Europe too. I feel like this happens to any American college kid in Europe. Um, he said, somehow we figured out what train to get on, but now we're cutting it incredibly close to on time. Once we got to Hamburg, we asked where the venue was and started sprinting since the show had already started, showed our tickets, got into the venue, walked in right as the band hits Ain't no time to sash the gumbo. It was an incredible fish moment. We hopped on a train to make the 10 plus hour return trip, grabbed out our bikes and made it to class 15 minutes late. Easy magic. Easy magic is a good, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. It's just like this, this, this Europe fish stuff is just, it's outrageous, right? Yeah. I will say, uh, in his defense on the, the train thing, I mean, I've been on a train that was taken out of service and headed to the yard once in America. So these things happen to people. It's, you know, no, no shame. Maybe I should can you cut that out, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's like, it's just interesting that this is like, this is the, this is the experience of every American who goes to Europe for like any purpose. It's like you go there, you miss a train someone yells at you and says something about Americans and you it's just, it's a good reflection on how us as Americans were so lucky to just be like taken care of throughout the world. You know, I it's mean, like, I had the same thing happen in Washington DC and I was neither intoxicated nor listening to a, a different <laughs> language. I just somehow didn't know when I first moved here that like not all of the trains go all the way to the end of the line. And so despite every single person on the train getting up and leaving and the lights going out on the train, and probably some sort of announcement that I missed because I had headphones on or something like that. It finally took the conductor like walking into the train and being like, get your ass off of this train now. (laughs) So Jason, the other email we got, Jason, who listened to our Santa Fe um, release about the, the 93 release, and he he wanted to comment sort of on how the band changed. And we talked a lot in that episode about how different the music was between 93 and 97 and I don't remember what the reference point was Matt if we talked about someone who had had seen a show in 98 and and not seen one since 93 but um, that was kind of where he started and he said um, I want to give my personal perspective I saw the band in 92 and saw them every year at least once through 98 there was a definite high point they're pushing their physical limits 
through their playing through 96. I heard it called speed jazz, but to me it was a sense that they had something to prove and they put everything into the music. And a lot of shows I saw during that time seemed like Fishman and Trey would push each other and inspire some incredible performances. It felt like a high wire act because there wasn't the musical safety net of the drums and bass holding down the bottom end. When it was on, it felt completely unique and incredibly creative. And additionally, you have to put Fish in the context of the time. Grunge, metal, alt-indie was pretty dominant, but there wasn't anything out there like Fish. Jam bands were barely a thing, and to see four young guys play instruments as fast as muscularly and had the courage to improvise as ferociously as they did back then made them very unique. After the Clifford Ball, they must have made that decision to establish the rhythm section foundation format because that's how it sounded to me when I saw them in 97. They were still great, but the feel had changed very noticeably. Cow funk or whatever you want to call that style was their avenue into a new musical direction. I thought that was a pretty interesting perspective. I don't know what you guys think about that. I, it, it sounds accurate to me that that in terms of the evolution Jonathan you saw a, a lot of fish during that time I mean yeah I think he's I think he's onto something and I I know a lot of people who heard 97 and were like this is not the fish that I was into and uh, there are people who just they they were done they thought fish was done at least playing the music they wanted to hear and they, they walked away um, plenty of people will judge them harshly for that um, and that's fine. But this also, this reminds me, I, I think it was you and I met, we interacted on Twitter the other day in response to the 95 fish show. God, I'd swear this was you. Yeah. Uh, I was talking about how, you know, 1995 fish, they were the best band in the world. And I think the question was, um, you know, were I think you were taking the position that they were then as well as in 97. And I think my thought was by 97, they, they didn't, they didn't care about what other people thought they were pushing and pushing hard in 95 to try to, to be better and become the best. But 97, they just kind of were, and it didn't matter where they were relative to anyone else. Yeah. I was going to bring up that exact conversation um, or the tweet that I had, cause I'd had a couple little different branch conversations with people around that. Um, you know, my reaction watching that 95 show from last week. And then also in comparison, the 97 uh, show from a couple weeks before um, summer 95. And I would actually kind of group it in almost with like fall 94 is an era where I watching that show had never seen any professional shot footage of the band from that period. You know, you've seen audience videos and things like that, but I don't know that anybody had until we, until we saw this show. So it was interesting for me to see like get a really, really good visual representation of like what during summer 95, when they were jamming so hard every single night, what the mindset of the band looked like, what their swagger was like. And on my tweet, that you responded to, I said the something that the effect of like the, the difference between 95 and 97 is the difference between a band that wants to be the best band in the world versus a band that knows they're the best band in the world because 95 they're working so hard and they're just so focused. And I think Rob Mitchum in his write up at the show commented about how like they didn't look at each other at all. They were all so laser focused. And in 97, the swagger is so different. They're having fun. They're like, you know, Trey's dancing around a lot. They're kind of communicating visually and with hand signals and stuff like that. And I don't think that it's a case of 
one band being better than the other, because I think to your John, your point, Jonathan, like they probably were, you know, the best band in the world in 95. It's just their attitude because maybe they didn't realize it. Maybe they thought that they still had further to go, but they look so hungry at that point. And by 97, and I think this part, you know, kind of dovetails with the more laid back funk sound. They're like, we can do anything. Right. I mean, we know we can do anything. We're going to have this laid back swagger about the whole thing. Um, so I think it's a very, very interesting contrast. And going back to the, the listener email that we got here, um, you know, I could absolutely see how somebody who was in it for that, as he called it, a high wire act. Um, when you get to this band that is really, really loose and funky and having more about having fun on stage, it may not be what you're looking for. It definitely was a very different band. I mean, I saw fish a number of times through the end of 95 and then i didn't see them again until 97 when i came back at the great win i was i mean i'd been listening but i was still surprised at how different it was i kept coming back though (laughs) what what i find so interesting about this is like as a musician aha i've been talking to a lot of musicians like for this other podcast past present future live which i should plug every person I talk to has this point where they're trying to I mean it's it's exact journey that you would imagine right like every artist is like I was doing this thing I'm trying to prove myself working really hard and then they reach this point whether it's a breakthrough or a turning point or whatever where they're like and I realized that what I've been doing was actually the thing I should be doing you know and it's just I don't know. It sounds so obvious, right? Like many of us in life have experienced that already in our careers or or personal relationships or whatever. But I feel like that's a really important aspect to keep in mind. And for younger people who haven't reached that point yet, just being open to the fact that like the thing you're doing may be the right thing, but it may not be. But you have to actually like pay attention to what's happening to know. Does that make sense? Like they in in 93. Two ninety three, ninety four. like they knew that if they just kept playing shows and they kept pushing themselves and they kept writing new music that they would like, they would break through. They didn't need to release an album. They didn't need to have a number one hit. They needed to build their audience and they needed to keep putting on really cool live shows. Like knowing the, knowing the thing that you need to do to survive and to succeed is really important. And I think that's like, I feel like fish figured that out, but between 95 and 97, it's sort of like splitting hairs because like we, like we talked to Charlie Dirksen on the video chat last week, he was adamant that like whether or not Jerry had passed in 95, like fish was going to do what fish did because they were on a rocket ship. And I think that's a huge part of the narrative is like fish benefited from Jerry dying. And I, I'm sure that's true in some sense, but what a lot of people like, I don't know, Jonathan, if you agree, but like a lot of people who were on tour with both bands at the time were like, they were already going in the right direction. And the only reason I bring this up is because I think they were making a conscious decision in 95 to like push themselves in this direction and to keep doing what they're doing, which was not album sales. It was just keep touring, keep playing new songs and keep delighting the audience. Right. I mean, they had they had a, a stack of new songs, uh, some of which they debuted in May and the rest debuted on the tour. And they just were just playing, just playing and playing hard, building on what they had done. And the dead were on tour. Didn't matter. Um, people people were still largely filling up 
I mean, they weren't necessarily selling out. I think I said this last week, but they were largely filling up the large sheds. And it didn't matter about the Grateful Dead. It did change after the Grateful Dead were not on tour because, yeah, people who people like myself who were splitting their time stopped splitting their time. And some other people did come over. But there are plenty of people who were not going to come over, never never did come over, or it took several years to do it. And Fish was growing. Fish was Fish kept doing the exact same thing that they were always going to do on stage. It had not what the the makeup of the audience didn't matter. I think it's interesting. I mean, this obviously has nothing to do with the show we're going to discuss tonight, but except that it's a show, <laughs> and, it's, and and, and it is a, concert. A, a little bit about the fact that you know there's. Fish continued to do what they do, which is exactly. you know, all the way to 98. They're just they're just playing their asses off, producing some spectacle because it's fun. And, you know, who shows up and just opens with a Led Zeppelin song and encores with another song they've never played before by a arguably very influential, you know, 90s, 80s, 90s rock band. But still, like, who does that? Fish does that. Exactly. And they were, they were, they're being true to themselves, obviously. And at this point we, we should say that summer 98, all they did was just play covers and I, and jams. I, they cover, they did covers and they did jams. I remember, I mean, I got a lot of these tapes and I still have a lot of them, but they, I don't remember it. Was it referred to as a jukebox tour like later? Cause I, I remember it just being like, Whoa, they covered rhinoceros. Yeah, I don't, by I don't Smashing know where Pumpkins that... at Deer Creek. But now it's known as that because there were dozens of covers played over the course of the tour. I don't know where that term came from, but I do know uh, I mean, we were we were it's noticing it uh, by the time, you know, I jumped on at Merriweather. Uh, you know, we were we knew what they'd been playing and it was crazy. It was like new covers. Every, what are they going to play tonight? Sweet Jane, Sabotage. You know, it was just yeah, it was crazy. Um and it was a lot of fun. And everything in between was really great, too. Matt, why this show as an archival release? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yes. it's and, and I won't pretend to be Kevin Shapiro um, or any of the powers that be who would have gone into this decision. That's not. Um, but the uh, it's not an extremely well-represented part of the band's career in terms of live fish releases. Um, there's well, a bu- lot more, a lot more fall 98 stuff than summer, that's right? That's fair, there's, but 1998 is they've released 22.39% of the shows from 1998 as live fish releases. How many percent? 22.39. Thank you. Scott Marks biz archive <laughs> has gives us a chart, which will go, which we'll come back to after Matt gives his answer. I'm sorry. To, okay. To Cause I, I want to say there, something Matt. else too, but I want to let Matt speak before I contradict him. But I, would, I, I won't do that. I was thinking this is without data in front of me. Um, I, I feel like most of those are for the preponderance of those are, are at least are fall releases. Um, the summer, not quite as much. Um, you know, it's a great show besides having a couple of really notable covers. Um, it's got some really great jams that we'll talk about. Um, I've also seen it as a frequently requested release by a lot of fans too. And I think sometimes that does play a part, um, you know, whether we are influencing them and, and kind of, you know, 
they wear down eventually and just, you know, given what people want to hear, um, or, Cypress. or yeah, or, or whatever, <laughs> yeah, but that's um, not working. I mean, but let's, and let's also, you know, say thank you too, because it seems like we're getting like two releases a month, uh, right now, in addition to like one old, you know, maybe 1.0 show on dinner in a movie and, and everything. So, um, while we're not, you know, getting live shows this summer, there's definitely a glutton of, uh, stuff coming out for us to check out. Yeah. It- it's been nice not to have to think hard about what to do an episode on because Fish just released something again. I would say that, like, you know, in, in terms of summer, well, first of all, Matt, you're totally right. And and I think we all agree that it's been amazing to see those 1.0 shows. I mean, seeing Virginia Beach 97, I was like, holy shit, I cannot. I mean, I saw a lot of shows in 97, 12 or 13 shows. I don't remember Trey just dancing around the stage like he owned the fucking place. Every song. It's like he's playing like a ballad and he's like, I fucking own this place. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's amazing that what they're doing and the the four kind of camera thing at the 95 show. I mean, amazing. It, Summer 98 was so interesting because right before this show you have, well, you, I guess a little bit before you have, you have so many amazing shows. You have the, the Terrapin Station show, which I was at, of course, at like Virginia Beach. Is that like, is that something to release? Like maybe not. That's, that's a week after, right? You have Deer Creek is the, right? A couple shows after with the rhinoceros, Smashing Pumpkins, um, cover with a bunch of awesome jams, really good show. Great, great Haley's and a MoMA and a, a, there, there's so many good shows from the summer. So I, I am curious how much the fan, um, urging, plays in this you know because th- you could argue through i don't know a lot of these shows as an as a release starting yeah. i think with virginia beach but also you know merriweather and and walnut creek and you know deer creek so i don't know how much how much is uh, is that the fans complaining matt is, it, is the fans complaining really pushing people I I would say no because otherwise Big Cypress would have been released a long time ago. <laughs> I, mean, I think there's there's something to be said for you know the the band you know releasing shows that people don't necessarily expect. Uh, you and know, Vernon all the time. and Vernon Downs came out so like so the '98 summer stuff is coming out slowly, but um, I would just say the Deer Creek show with the rhinoceros opener from with you know which is from Gish obviously which is an amazing album. Um, I I think that uh, yeah we're we're not we're not giving them the ideas of what to release. They're, they're coming to them themselves. I would be surprised if as they're weighing a couple things, you know, Kevin and whomever is like, Oh, you know, some people have asked me for this. So, you know, they'll be happy and then puts it out. Or like the, the last one, uh, that was at Santa Fe, you know, which doesn't circulate. So there's, mm-hmm. that's great stuff to get too. So, um, yeah, and I'm sorry for stepping on you, Matt, with it when I was throwing the numbers around. Um, they have released a lot of 98, but that includes things like, you know, Hampton Comes Alive and all of this stuff. Um, 1998, as a year all told, they've released 15 shows of 67 total played. And again, credit to Scott Marks for, I don't know where he got it, but he tweeted it, and so I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, the next... Contender is 97 with uh, 13 of 78 shows released. 95, I think, is right behind that. Uh, but that's 12 
percent of the 1995 shows versus versus 22 percent of the 98 shows. The the ones that are really suffering is 1989. They've only put out 0.8 percent of 1989 <laughs> shows. And so what I'm saying is, <laughs> we need some a big 1989 boxed yeah. set. Uh, no, there's, um, well, I, I do think we, we should, we could use more 98 and more 95 releases. Of course. I, and I, right. I savor them all and I'm not actually advocating for anything other than more 1989 and big Cypress. Um, I think that's fair. <laughs> Matt, Matt, do you, as someone who came a tiny bit later to this than Jonathan or I, do you remember this show? Like, was this a show that you got early on? Was this a show that was discussed? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. The Ramble On, uh, always people talk about that being, a, you know, of the summer of covers, the jukebox stuff, this was one of the big ones. And then the Tweezer's really big, um, really great Tweezer, uh, which I believe had also been put out on a live bait before. Um, so I was pretty familiar with this uh, this show in general. Um, and actually a lot of 1998, and that was probably the first year that I ever really got into a lot of the shows, I think mostly because of the number of releases, particularly in the fall, you know, hearing Hampton comes alive and Worcester and, and a lot of those shows that came out earlier. I will say that I think that the tape trading, I mean, I was in college at this point and I remember getting tapes much more quickly and that might've just been like the evolution of the internet and taping and whatever else. But like in 95, you'd wait like I would wait a month to get a tape and here in 98, I think I had the tapes from the shows within two weeks. So, you know, half the time, I don't know, Jonathan, if you were collecting tapes like that, or if that was a different thing for you, but it's worth noting that these tapes became more available and also that the internet didn't really have concerts. Right. The internet. Well, but they did have concerts. We'll get to that in a second, but yeah, they, um, the, right, they uh, did have concerts. They did have <laughs> including concerts. this one, <laughs> including this one very specifically. That's why I say that. But the uh, yeah, tape trading <laughs> was accelerating. But I think also, you know, we were kind of moving. We were expanding our own networks. Uh, but in '98, I knew I knew tapers, and I knew you know friends of tapers. So I, you know, they, they things were moving faster. Things were coming at us quicker. Um, and by '99, I had you know friends stopping off during tour and, and, and giving me tapes. So, um, yeah, it, it was accelerating and it, may I get to what I was talking about, alluding to about con- concerts being on the internet? Uh, yes. this was, this was a webcast, which is, uh, seems what the crazy. Fuck is that? <laughs> now we all know what webcasts are now, but in 1998, the webcast was like, you know, if you have a the dorm ethernet, maybe you were okay. Um, but you weren't, I did, I didn't have DSL at home in 98. Uh, by the time they did the, um, the 2000 Vegas webcast, I had, you know, a DSL connection. I watched it at home and it was great. It was a little window and my big CRT monitor, but it was, it didn't, it wasn't choppy much at all. Uh, but I can't imagine having watched this on, AOL fishbowl or whatever the hell this was streamed on when it went, when it went out in 1998. Yeah. And they, they, they webcast at least part of Halloween 98 too as well. Right. 
I believe that's true. That was because that was the, the earliest one that I was aware of until I looked at the notes for this one. So I was a little surprised because um, the other thing is that I mean, pretty much all of these webcasts, even the early ones, you've seen some sort of footage circulating, even if it was from a tiny, you know, real player window or whatever. Um, I don't know if you guys ever have, or maybe you watched it back in the day. I've never seen any of the the footage from this before. No, whoever's got it, cough it up, and maybe we'll get it for uh, dinner and a movie. Yeah, yeah. The footage, cool. exi- footage must exist, so uh, hopefully they'll come off it at some point. Matt, maybe we should take a quick break. Should we do that? Let's do that. Let's hear from some of our friends. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. The jukebox tour was was in full effect, and the the first time played, obviously the opener. Um, do you guys want to comment on this first set? Because there's there's a lot to go into here. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to say Ramble On, cool choice. Love the Zeppelin, love the cover. I like the way the end of this, Trey just kind of sort of abandons the notion of playing a Jimmy Page riff, and it starts to trail into that kind of very 98 kind of uh, repetitive riff as opposed to like that like sharp Jimmy Page-y kind of thing. Um, that that's that's my favorite part about this song. I mean, although Page sings it really pretty well. Yeah, well performed. Um, and I like the the as you were saying, Jonathan, the way that they just sort of drop in the mic song uh, all of a sudden. Really good flow through the whole first part of this show um, into the mic song. Um, and you can tell. I I always remember hearing this on the audience tapes, and it definitely comes through on the soundboard recording as well. How uh, hyped up the audience was when they realized what was being played at the uh, at the start of the show. The mic song was i think notable i mean it's all this stuff had had such energy and i think it was it was a pretty strong entrance do you think that like playing doing this jukebox thing like made them want to kind of immediately after the cover like go into something familiar to make sure that the audience was engaged that's what it felt like listening to it i I mean I, i would only argue against that because it's a great big Led Zeppelin cover, so it seems like that's got to be familiar. But I also think they're just having a blast. Uh, my, I, I haven't read anything about you know from the band about this tour, but my impression is that they're learning all these songs that afternoon, uh, which uh, you know culminated with what they did on November second that year. Um, they just kept just learning songs every every day and we're just having a hell of a fun time but yeah then it's like all right now now let's get down with some kick-ass fish music and they really do 
Yeah, I love the way at this point, um, kind of talking about going back to what we were talking about before about the swagger and the uh, you know patience on stage um, the way that they kind of eased into the Mike song jam uh, during this era um, I feel like a lot of times before and after they would have Trey would have tried to like get at it right away uh, with a solo and here the, he just kind of backs off and they let the groove happen and once it feels right in the groove then um, things start to take off a little bit more um, really really cool Mike song this one the jam doesn't get too too crazy like a lot of Mike's songs do but it's really well played um, and the way that they segue into Esther is awesome Trey just sort of like holds out this note um, that then uh, uh, or actually Paige sorry holds out a chord and then like gradually morphs it into the beginning of Esther um, which is I, I love Esther so much I was listening to this and just remembering I God, I love this song so much. I would want to hear it all the time. Um, do you think they did it justice? Oh, absolutely. It's a great version of Esther. It's, it's just, hard for them to do these days. There's a little bit little bit of a flub. There's a lyrical thing that happened, and there's like one part in the arpeggio section where Trey gets a little bit um, off, but it's it's really good. Um, and then the, the Weekapog groove after this, um, maybe you guys think I'm crazy. I, I keep feeling like 98 was maybe the best year for Weekapog groove. Hmm. So many epic versions. Um, well, especially in the end of the fall, that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, think about the, like, yeah. the, the Worcester version and some of these where um, Mike and Paige in particular really go off in the jam and they give them a lot of space to do it and they're played at just a breakneck pace. Um, just yeah, really, really good year for uh, for this. And the, the, like I said before, the whole first segment of this show is is just a fantastic listen. They really pound out this pog. I, I, I like it a lot. Page uh, stands out quite a bit. I think it's it's interesting. I feel like from a tape collecting standpoint at that point, which was I think was still tapes in '98. Yep. I just wanted to like have these tapes because of the covers. Like every show, and also it was the post '97, right? And then they go to Europe. They come back for another U.S. tour, and you're like, are they going to be the same as they were in summer '97? And they they were different, which is incredible but part of the lure was like wow ramble on i gotta get that <laughs> tape you know and bing cuts in stealing encore sweet um but the the week delivers the rest of the set i think is is good i don't know if there are any other highlights I, I feel like the birds of a feather is has a little bit of a jam but it's not it's not that notable in the canon 
Um, Ficus. I, I'm going to shout out yeah. Ficus, man. That was uh, very new at the time and uh, and really cool. I like Gaiuti, although I prefer a '94 Gaiuti. I think if I were to if I were to just pull one off a shelf, uh, but that's fine. Um, yeah, Longboy Funky Bitch is a fine way to end a set, uh, especially knowing that there's another set coming. Yeah, Ficus is awesome. That was. Um listening to this which i i feel like i don't know maybe i like have skipped over ficus in the past or something but it's performed really well i mean ficus was done only a handful of times all in 1998 um you know uh they sort of kind of moved away from it after shortly after the album story of the ghost came out but it is really cool um i would love to hear it although i think a lot of people would probably head towards the bathroom um if they heard it except for <laughs> the uh the people that were just kind of you know freaking out for statistics purposes but um very very cool mike song um and i had the same feeling about birds of a feather um in a year when birds of a feather was probably the best it's ever been this is a very surprisingly straightforward version never really yeah. t- takes off the way a lot of other versions do um and of course the you know lawn boy funky bitch uh, to round up the set is is nice a little bit of a front-loaded set for sure um but sure. really good from start to finish birds yeah. does rip it's just it's just short. They don't stretch it out. And again, I, and I would, I would say that the people heading for the bathroom during ficus are just fools. Um, but <laughs> that's me. <laughs> I do that. I say that. Jonathan goes to the bathroom after the show. Yeah, I go to the bathroom at the hotel. Yeah, I go to the bathroom <laughs> seventeen times between the time they start and the time they stop. Um, that, that's I will true. say he that does. <laughs> ficus is one of the only songs that has a five. Uh, person credit in terms of music and lyrics all four band members and tom and that's it it was common during this time mostly because of the kind of like you know group group songwriting effort and it's interesting i i think tom and i have talked about this before i'm not sure if it's on the scales but ficus says you know like some of these songs are really interesting history so um all right let's get into set two matt you have thoughts about this piper opener Man, this is why you slow build the piper. The uh, especially at the beginning of a set, like the way that it just revs up the crowd and just kind of gets the band momentum to go into the whole set is incredible. Um, of course, this is before you have jammed out pipers, uh, which is what we have now without the intro. And then there was that sweet spot in the middle of like '99, 2000, when you had both the slow build and the big jam um but uh, I, I don't believe you i don't think that's such a thing yes see oswego <laughs> man oswego <laughs> i'm kidding that was it but um yeah the great start to the set here um my only kind of slightly critiquing note uh about the big first part of this set is the wilson to me seems to take some of the juice out of the flow um, but maybe that's just me. I just feel like Wilson in, in set two, other than the opening position, always feels awkward. But you guys may or may not agree with that. I, I don't think it's necessarily... I wouldn't blanket rule it again, you know. I wouldn't blanket rule against it in set two. But I think in the number two slot, it feels like they're starting over. So Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I was, I was playing this set to uh, the family today before dinner. And it's sort of like the piper got things going and then and then suddenly like, you know, people are in the kitchen and they're like hearing the the you know 
dissonant kind of Wilson stuff. And I'm just like, it's cool. Like it'll, it'll, and then it'll get cool again in a few minutes. It feels like a, a yeah. departure, but also it doesn't really go anywhere. You know what I mean? It's just like a six minute kind of like stopping point where you're, you're, you are kind of starting over. Yeah. But that's I okay. Felt, I felt I mean, the same thing about the 2001 transition into Megillah. It was just like, it was sort of like, what, why, why, I, why, why? I felt like Trey found Megillah in 2001. Yeah. You don't always have to pursue it. I mean, I saw a rabbit yesterday. <laughs> I didn't go run after it in the fucking park. You know? I, <laughs> I see rabbits in my backyard all the time. And exactly. I tell you what, I, Do you I go run take after, off. Uh, yeah. Get him away from my freaking. <laughs> Jonathan's editing his podcast shit, and know? suddenly he's gone. Uh, no, I, I, I thought that, uh, McGill is dope. I'm sorry. I just wanted to get there. Go ahead, Matt. It is. And it's, it is, uh, but I, I would agree with both sides on this one because it's, um, I love it. I like that the fact that like the last, you know, handful of times they've played it, they, it's typically come out of like big, crazy, weird jams, which makes it sound sort of demented. Um, yeah. That 97 uh, Virginia Beach show that we saw on dinner and a movie last month was a perfect example of that. Um, when it, you know, um, it, it sort of starts out even with Trey, like playing around with his pitch shifting and stuff like that. And it sounds weird. Um, July 4th, 2000 out of saw it again is like another example where it comes out and it's like just seems really weird this i get i, I really really like the intention because the the 2001 is so funky and if this transition had been a little bit smoother it would have been awesome but it it's a little bit of an awkward segue to to try to get there so oh yeah i get what you're saying <laughs> I, I enjoyed the ride and it's, you know, they hadn't played it since that Virginia beach 97 show 69 right. show gap, by the way, which is, right. you know, right. that's pretty nice. nice. Um, and the, <laughs> but 2001 is groovy, uh, and enjoyable. And then, uh, they s- slide into tweezer. So before we depart 2001, I made the same okay. kind of comment about week uh, before I also feel maybe 1998, the best year for 2001. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I think that's probably true. It's a good one. Yeah. They just, they find the groove so naturally. Um, and you know, the way that, uh, Fishman and Mike are interacting on this one, it's so good. Fish's tempo is like so, uh, up and fast. Um, they're really cooking. Um, it's exactly the right song for that period. Yes, it really is. It really, it kind of, if you were going to point to one song, I feel like this really defines this and Mike's song really. I mean, starting, I mean, starting with the Island Tour version. Yeah. It's it's funny, though. You could you can argue that the 2001s they were playing in Summer 93 are exactly the right song for that version, for that for that song uh, in that era. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they adapted this song for who they were. Um, and in Summer 98, they were, you know, there were a lot of different bands, uh, but they... I. One of my favorite things that came out of this band is at this time was the uh, the ambient grooves, uh, and we really we we get one in this tweezer. Um, the it's true, and I, I will say that tweezer during this was a little bit like it's interesting because I feel like the tweezer is the highlight of this show, but maybe maybe there doesn't have to be a highlight of the show. But is this the highlight of the show? I, I think that this this middle section of set two from two thousand one probably 
probably right through Albuquerque is is where I want to live for at least a little while. Um, yep. I so you were playing this show to your family in the kitchen. I, I listened to this show. We actually went to the mountains this weekend, and we're coming home today. And I made my family listen to set two in the car. I played it at them. Would be probably more accurate. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I I timed it just like semi-consciously and it worked so that tweezer was playing as we uh when we got onto 64 coming east uh, uh left 81 and we started heading up the mountain uh the the west side of the mountains and as we came over the top the the heavy like early part of the groove of tweezer was ending and we were coming into the kind of spacier more stretched out leading into the ambient phases of Tweezer as we came gliding down the mountain in towards Charlottesville. And, uh, and it was rad. That's pretty dope. I just had a really nice experience with that. I just want to say that I think 98 is not the year of Tweezer. I think 97 and 99 have like such, like so many more offerings in terms of Tweezer jams, including, you know, many that we've talked about on this show, but 98 has, it was it was such a different year. It wasn't the year to like go to Tweezer, but this is this is one of the best of the year. I, I, I'm going to argue against you, but only because if I if I were to pick a year for Tweezer, it wouldn't be any of the ones that you listed. But this one right here is uh, it would be is, 95 is, for you. Yeah, of course, uh, or 94. But this one is really great and a lot of fun. What do you think about it, Matt? It's good. Um, yeah, I, there's some good versions in 98. They also didn't play it a ton in 98 as compared yeah. to other surrounding years. I feel like they needed to back off on it a little bit. But like the Portland Meadows version that has the California Love jam in it is, yes. is really awesome. But that's just all like California Love. It's not a lot of tweezer. That comes out of tweezer. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's part of the tweezer. It is encompassed uh, within the tweezer. Um, uh, but no, this is this is good. The, the, the funny thing to me is like right before tweezer, how like for a second, they're like, okay, let's go back into two that's in one. And you can even hear Trey like very faintly off mic on the recording now. Like, I, I don't know exactly what he says, but it sounds like he yells over to fish. Nah, nah, just do tweezer. Um, and they drop and they go into tweezer, uh, which is great. Um, but this tweezer, I think is a really good example of once again, like the, the 2001, how the interaction between Mike and Fishman at this period was so, so great. They're so locked in at the start of the tweezer jam. Um, and it's not just like usually when you see a, a bassist and a drummer really locked in, it's because the, the drummer's kick drum, you know, his right foot is like locked in with what the bass player is doing and it doesn't feel like they're trying to find each other here. You have not only that, but Mike's kind of dancing around the snare and hi-hat groove to create something new. Fish hears that. He locks in with Mike, um, and they create this whole new thing. Trey and Paige are just, like, laying back. They're not doing anything during this whole section. Yeah. And then only once that new groove is established do either of them start to, to come in. And then once they come in, Mike immediately just starts to modulate. And he, he first he goes to C, which is going to be the relative major of A minor 
diner, which they're in, quickly decides that's not a good idea. Maybe it's too obvious of a choice or something like that, and instead takes it up to the fifth, which is going to be D major. Um, and it's a really cool transition because it kind of... It, going to the, the fifth instead of a third is more of a, a lift and it gives you more of that bliss jam feeling and so that takes them into the last section this bliss thing which then as Jonathan you said becomes a very typical 98 I, I would call it ambient chaos um, yeah. that kind of wraps up the jam so um, it's it's not you know mind bending journey like you'd hear in a lot of other amazing versions of Tweezer but um, over the course of the you know 18 minutes or whatever um, just really really solid playing and not a lot of you know wasted notes meditating as I came down the mountain today on uh, how this connects at some in some point to Trey getting the keyboard and wanting to kind of find yet another way to back off the lead um, in you know what is this uh, this is August and so by the next year you know he's he's really found yet another way to pull back and give everybody else the reins and um you can you can kind of hear the spaces that he's he's working around you know he's pulling back and letting them build the spaces to to find new new sounds to build and uh you know this isn't maybe the most prime example of it from summer 98 but it's i think it's a good one and then we get fluffhead which for reasons of state is on the jam charts on fish.net (laughs) that's fine it seems fine i mean it's like it's when (laughs) fluffhead was played like fluffhead you know that's it's 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 reason enough to note it on the jam chart i think i mean it's cool it's really cool i think this really fucking well played fluffhead yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's it's good for sure but does just does well played land something on a jam chart 
No, I think uh, jammed it jammed towards Fluffed lands it on the uh, on the jam chart. Maybe I don't know. It's, it's not for us to say. We're, we we are not Fish.net contributors per se, uh, and that's fine. Uh, it's a good Fluffed though, and I like it after this tweezer. And then Brian into Brian and Robert, which is what a beautiful song. But then Albuquerque, I'm not sure why you do that. Albuquerque is an awesome song uh, from the best Neil Young album. So. So there, um, as, as far it. as you're concerned. Well, obviously, it's just my opinion, and <laughs> and I will fight anyone with different opinions, but <laughs> only on alternating Thursdays. <laughs> no, I think uh, you don't necessarily want to see in this part of the show a uh, double dose of cooldown. Um, but if you're going to do that, Brian and Robert and Al- Albuquerque are a great choice uh, to do those. Love Brian and Robert. It's I think we're all in agreement on that. And I'm with Jonathan. I love Albuquerque. One of my favorite Neil Young songs. Love the way the fish plays it. Uh, and I, I think it's really nice. I dig it. So you're overruled. Been caught stealing. <laughs> Once when I was five. What do you guys think about that? I would say probably put it in the bucket of it was, I'm sure it was very fun if you were there. Uh, I think it's fine on tape. Uh, I I think it's also fine that it didn't become a regular rotation song. Five, but six times played. Five more after this. Can you believe that? Last time Walnut Creek... 2011. I didn't even know that they played it one time after this. <laughs> like I, I forgot all of them. You should you should try to listen to a fish podcast or something. Yeah, I might I learn something. <laughs> I might want to dial in some fish shit. But it's amazing. <laughs> it's sort of like I feel the same way about that as I do about Ramble On. It's like cool cover, great fun. But like, are you fucking kidding me? They I mean, this? I, I saw this at Walnut Creek in 2011. Um, what did you go nuts? It was fun to see there. It was cool, but you know, I mean, I don't think it's a song that they should be playing a lot. It's not exactly (laughs) in the, in the range of any of their vocals. I think the same thing about sabotage too. Um, I saw sabotage once and you know, twice and it's, um, you know, the audience going ape shit in the room is super, super fun, but like, is it a well-performed song that musically sounds great? No, it's a fun, it's a fun cover. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's a lot of these things from the, the summer 98, uh, exceptions being things like Sweet Jane or, uh, you know, Terrapin Station, which they should be playing a lot, a lot more often. <laughs> every um, show. Every show that I go to <laughs> at least, which means pretty much roughly every time they play Hood and Chalk Dust, they should also play Terrapin Station because well, I get those been, every night too. We've been talking about this for a long time. I mean, this being whatever this podcast is, we should mention that Ramble On, this was the first time they played it and they played it twice more, most recently 2010, I think. Yeah, Boardwalk Hall. So... There, you know, the covers, it's interesting to me how the covers inform what they do as a band, because with any band, the covers guide, I mean, Jonathan, like the Grateful Dead was like 30% covers. Grateful Dead were a cover band, but yeah. Mike Gordon has always insisted that Fish should be a cover band. Yeah. I think good bands are cover bands, right? That you just don't know it. And I, I won't say the current band that I'm listening to a lot. That does a lot of amazing covers, but um, I, I, I just I want to amend something I said earlier. I've seen Sabotage three times, but um, you know, three some, out of six. 
Three out of five, buddy. Three out of five. Um, son of a bitch all in all in 1998 <laughs> son of a bitch well uh, we, we do, do, <laughs> do want to say i want to say one thing which is that i really appreciate fish putting these out it's really cool and i'm very grateful even if this isn't the, even the best tweezer of that month but it was really fucking awesome show <laughs> yeah Matt and I, jonathan <laughs> did you guys have any takeaways from the show um, I always like hearing new fish soundboards, so uh, it's always fun. And I, I especially like that they've uh, stepped up the pace of them lately and that I – cool. I invite it and encourage it, and I'm happy so far with everything they've given us, and I look forward to whatever's next. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm never going to argue with uh, hearing another soundboard recording, um, uh, and and I like to be surprised. Um, there's a lot of shows that I want to hear uh, them release, but it's also kind of cool to have some curveballs thrown at you and uh, not necessarily expect what's coming, or to have a show release that you know you haven't listened to like a million times, or that everybody hasn't listened to a million times. Because quite honestly, we probably have a lot less to say about it. Jonathan, given that we know that if you complain enough, they will release a show. What show do you want them to release next? Uh, what was that? Uh, Townsend Family Park. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's what I want. All right. Jonathan's going back in the archive. Matt, what about you? Oh, show to release. Um, my big thing has been uh, December 11th, 1999. Uh, that's or other shows. I, I, I think if there's an era, I think 99 and 2000 is a is an era that I would zoom in on. Bec- um, and I've said this before, mostly because I find the audience tapes from that era to not be as good as other years. Pretty bad, right? They're like, I don't know. It's and kind I, of amazing how bad it is. I don't know what it is. What the, the PA those years or what was going on, but. But so many of them, even some of the best recordings are just boomy. Um, they're not as clear as, for example, you know, recordings from 97 or recordings from newer shows. Um, so just for that reason alone, um, especially when you think about like the way that some of the ambient stuff was happening at that point, to be able to hear the nuance in some of the sounds that were going on. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I put uh, I put 12, 11, 99 fourth first uh as a, as a candidate for that philly portland uh the not bad night of hampton um and then <laughs> uh the shows that they did actually the funny thing is with big cypress is that is the one show from that era that the tapes are just outstanding maybe just because it was you know in an open field and easier to record or i don't know if they you know juiced up the pa a little bit more for that show but God, those tapes are good. That PA sounded so good. You could hear a mile away, man. It was so good. Okay. I think we've done our job. <laughs> did, did we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Happy Father's Day, guys. Jonathan and Matt, Happy you guys Father's are both Day. fucking awesome dads and people. Thank you. Same thing. Thank you. You guys are inspirations you, for me, and I hope that everyone out there has a good Father's Day or had a good Father's Day by the time this comes out. Um, I guess I will tell people, I will, I I do want to say one thing before we end, Matt, if that's okay. I just want to say that we have been trying as much as we can to direct people to organizations that people can support to fight against our incredibly racist and violent 
society that we live in, unfortunately. And I do want to say that we'll put a link to a few organizations that people can donate to if they want to help end police violence, racial inequality in America. Other than that, Jonathan, Matt, should we say goodbye? Let's say something else. You say it. Should we say keep on rocking? There you go. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.